This is WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station, also streaming live online at WVEW.org. And this is Indigo Radio, deepening, understanding, making connections. We're on the air every Sunday at 1 p.m. and we replay Mondays at 2 p.m. We are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and guests, not the radio station. And this is Anna Milani for Indigo Radio. Today we are spending the hour commemorating Dr. Martin Luther King, as Martin Luther King Day is tomorrow, Monday. And we are going to play a recording of his 1967 speech, Beyond Vietnam, A Time to Break the Silence. This speech is going to be read by both Indigo hosts, Spark Teacher Education Institute faculty and alumni. The readers are Nina Kunimoto, Kyra Swain, Katie Behan, Kelly Gino, myself, and Patrice Stryford. In his groundbreaking Beyond Vietnam speech, delivered at New York's Riverside Church on April 4th, 1967, a year to the day before Martin Luther King was murdered, King called the United States the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. Thank you for tuning in to help us commemorate Dr. Martin Luther King and the message that he brought forth in this speech. I come to this magnificent house of worship tonight because my conscience leaves me no other choice. I join with you in this meeting because I am in deepest agreement with the aims and work of the organization which has brought us together. Clergy and laymen concerned about Vietnam. The recent statement of your executive committee are the sentiments of my own heart and I found myself in full accord when I read its opening lines. A time comes when silence is betrayal. That time has come for us in relation to Vietnam. The truth of these words is beyond doubt, but the mission to which they call us is a most difficult one. Even when pressed by the demands of inner truth, men do not easily assume the task of opposing their government's policy especially in time of war. Nor does the human spirit move without great difficulty against all the apathy of conformist thought within one's own bosom and in the surrounding world. Moreover, when the issues at hand seem as perplexed as they often do in the case of this dreadful conflict, we are always on the verge of being mesmerized by uncertainty, but we must move on. Some of us who have already begun to break the silence of the night have found that the calling to speak is often a vocation of agony, but we must speak. We must speak with all the humility that is appropriate for, to our limited vision, but we must speak. And we must rejoice as well, for surely this is the first time in our nation's history that a significant number of its religious leaders have chosen to move beyond the prophesizing of smooth patriotism to the high grounds of a firm descent based upon the mandates of conscience and the reading of history. Perhaps a new spirit is rising among us. If it is, let us trace its movement well and pray that our own inner being may be sensitive to its guidance, for we are deeply in need of a new way beyond the darkness that seems so close around us. Over the past two years, as I have moved to break the betrayal of my own silences, and to speak from the burning of my own heart, as I have called for radical departures from the destruction of Vietnam, many persons have questioned me about the wisdom of my path. At the heart of their concerns 
This query has often loomed, large and loud. Why are you speaking about war, Dr. King? Why are you joining the voices of dissent? Peace and civil rights don't mix, they say. Aren't you hurting the cause of your people, they ask? And when I hear them, though I often understand the source of their concern, I'm nevertheless greatly saddened. For such questions mean that their inquirers have not really known me, my commitments, or my calling. Indeed, their questions suggest that they do not know the world in which they live. In the light of such tragic misunderstandings, I deem it of signal importance to try to state clearly, and I trust concisely, why I believe that the path from Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, the church in Montgomery, Alabama, where I began my pastorate, leads clearly to this sanctuary tonight. I come to this platform tonight to make a passionate plea to my beloved nation. This speech is not addressed to Hanoi or to the National Liberation Front. It is not addressed to China or to Russia. Nor is it an attempt to overlook the ambiguity of the total situation and the need for a collective solution to the tragedy of Vietnam. Neither is it an attempt to make North Vietnam or the National Liberation Front paragons of virtue, nor to overlook the role they can play in a successful re resolution of the problem. While they both have may have justifiable reason to be suspicious of the good faith of the United States, life and history give eloquent testimony to the fact that conflicts are never resolved without trustful give and take on both sides. Tonight, however, I wish not to speak with Hanoi and the NLF, but rather to my fellow Americans who, with me, bear the greatest responsibility in ending a conflict that has exacted a heavy price on both continents. Since I am a preacher by trade, I suppose it is not surprising that I have seven major reasons for bringing Vietnam into the field of my moral vision. There is at the outset a very obvious and almost facile connection between the war in Vietnam and the struggle I and others have been waging in America. A few years ago, there was a shining moment in that struggle. It seemed as if there was a real promise of hope for the poor, both black and white, through the poverty program. There were experiments, hopes, new beginnings. Then came the buildup in Vietnam, and I watched the program broken and eviscerated as if it were some idle political plaything of a society gone mad on war. And I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor, so long as adventures like Vietnam continued to draw men and skills and money like some demonic destructive suction tube. So I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and to attack it as such. Perhaps the more tragic recognition of reality took place when it became clear to me that the war was doing far more than devastating the hopes of the poor man, of the poor at home. It was sending their sons and their brothers and their husbands to fight and to die in extraordinarily high proportions relative to the rest of the population. We were taking the black young men who had been crippled by our society and sending them 8,000 miles away to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia, which they had not found in Southwest Georgia and East Harlem. So we have been repeatedly faced with the cruel irony of watching Negro and white boys on TV screens as they kill and die together for a nation that has been unable to seat them together in the same schools. So we watched them in brutal solidarity burning the huts of a poor village, but we realized that they would never live on the same block in Detroit. I could not be silent in the face of such cruel manipulation of the poor. My third reason moves to an even deeper level of awareness, for it grows out of my experience in the ghettos of the North over the last three years, especially the last three summers. As I have walked among the desperate, rejected, and angry young men, I have told them that Molotov cocktails and rifles would not solve their problems. I have tried to offer them my deepest compassion 
while while maintaining my conviction that social change comes most meaningfully through nonviolent action. But they asked, and rightly so, what about Vietnam? They asked if our own nation wasn't using massive doses of violence to solve its problems, to bring about the changes it wanted. Their questions hit home, and I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. For the sake of those boys, for the sake of this government, for the sake of hundreds of thousands trembling under our violence, I cannot be silent. For those who would ask the question, aren't you a civil rights leader and thereby mean to exclude me from the movement for peace? I have this further answer. In 1957, when a group of us formed the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, we chose as our motto to save the soul of America. We were convinced that we could not limit our vision to certain rights for Black people, but instead affirm the conviction that America would never be free or saved from itself unless the descendants of its slaves were loosed completely from the shackles they still wear. In a way, we were agreeing with Langston Hughes, that Black bard of Harlem, who had written earlier, Oh, yes, I say it plain. America never was America to me. And yet I swear this oath, America will be. Now, it should be incandescently clear that no one who has any concern for the integrity and life of America today can ignore the present war. If America's soul becomes totally poisoned, Part of the autopsy must read Vietnam. It can never be saved so long as it destroys the deepest hopes of men the world over. So it is that those of us who are yet determined that America will be are led down the path of protest and dissent, working for the health of our land. As if the weight of such a commitment to the life and health of America were not enough, Another burden of responsibility was placed upon me in 1964, and I cannot forget that the Nobel Prize for Peace was also a commission, a commission to work harder than I had ever worked before for the brotherhood of man. This is a calling that takes me beyond national allegiances, but even if it were not present, I would yet have to live with the meaning of my commitment to the ministry of Jesus Christ. To me, the relationship of this ministry to the making of peace is so obvious that I sometimes marvel at those who ask me why I am speaking against the war. Could it be that they do not know that the good news was meant for all men, for communist and capitalist, for their children and ours, for black and for white, for revolutionary and conservative? Have they forgotten that my ministry is in obedience to the one who loved his enemies so fully that he died for them? What then can I say to the Viet Cong or to Castro or to Mao as a faithful minister of this one? Can I threaten them with death or must I not share my life, share with them my life? Finally, as I try to delineate for you and for myself, the road that leads from Montgomery to this place, I would have offered all that was most valid if I simply said that I must be true to my conviction, that I share with all men the calling to be a son of the living God. Beyond the calling of race or nation or creed is this vocation of sonship and brotherhood. And because I believe that the Father is deeply concerned especially for his suffering and helpless and outcast children. I come tonight to speak for them. This I believe to be the privilege and the burden of all of us who deem ourselves bound by allegiances and loyalties, 
which are broader and deeper than nationalism and which go beyond our nation's self-defined goals and positions. We are called to speak for the weak, for the voiceless, for victims of our nation and for those it calls enemy. For no document from human hands can make these humans any less our brothers. And as I ponder the madness of Vietnam and search within myself for ways to understand and respond to compassion, my mind goes constantly to the people of that peninsula. I speak now not of the soldiers of each side, not of the junta in Saigon, but simply of the people who've been living under the curse of war for almost three continuous decades now. I think of them too, because it is clear to me that there will be no meaningful solution there until some attempt is made to know them and hear their broken cries. They must see Americans as strange liberators. The Vietnamese people proclaimed their own independence in 1945 after a combined French and Japanese occupation and before the communist revolution in China. They were led by Ho Chi Minh. Even though they quoted the American Declaration of Independence in their own document of freedom, we refused to recognize them. Instead, we decided to support France in its reconquest of her former colony. Our government felt that the Vietnamese people were not quote unquote ready for independence. And we, re we again fell victim to the deadly Western arrogance that has poisoned the international atmosphere for so long. With that tragic decision, we rejected a revolutionary government seeking self-determination and a government that had been established not by China, for whom the Vietnamese have no great love, but by clearly indigenous forces that included some communists. For the peasants, this new government meant real land reform, one of the most important needs in their lives. For nine years following 1945, we denied the people of Vietnam the right to it. Uh, the right of independence. For nine years, we vigorously supported the French in their abortive effort to recolonize Vietnam. Before the end of the war, we were meeting 80% of the French war costs, even before the French were defeated at Dien Bien Phu. They began to despair of the reckless action, but we did not. We encouraged them with our huge financial and military supplies to continue the war even after they had lost the will. Soon, we would be paying almost the full costs of this tragic attempt at recolonization. After the French were defeated, it looked as if independence and land reform would come again through the Geneva Agreements. But instead, there came the United States, determined that Ho should not unify the temporarily divided nation, and the peasants watched again as we supported one of the most vicious modern dictators, our chosen man, Premier Diem. The peasants watched and cringed as Diem ruthlessly rooted out all opposition, supported their extortionist landlords, and refused even to discuss reunification with the North. The peasants watched as all this was presided over by U.S. influence, and then by increasing numbers of U.S. troops who came to help quell the insurgency that Diem's methods had aroused. When Diem was overthrown, they may have been happy, but the long line of military dictatorships seemed to offer no real change, especially in terms of their need for land and peace. The only change came from America as we increased our troop commitments in support of governments which were singularly corrupt, inept, and without popular support. All the while, the people read our leaflets and received regular promises of peace and democracy and land reform. 
Now they languish under the bombs and consider us, not their fellow Vietnamese, the real enemy. They move sadly and apathetically as we herd them off the land of their fathers into concentration camps with minimal social needs where minimal social needs are rarely met. They know they must move or be destroyed by our bombs. So they go, primarily women and children and the aged. They watch as we poison their water, as we kill a million acres of their crops. They must weep as the bulldozers roar through their areas, preparing to destroy the precious trees. They wander into the hospitals with at least 20 casualties from American firepower for one Viet Cong injured, inflicted injury. So far, we may have killed a million of them, mostly children. They wander into those towns and see thousands of the children homeless without clothes, running in packs on the streets like animals. They see the children degraded by our soldiers as they beg for food. They see the children selling their sisters to our soldiers, soliciting for their mothers. What do the peasants think as we ally ourselves with the landlords and as we refuse to put any action into our many words concerning land reform? What do they think as we test our latest weapons on them, just as the Germans tested out new medicine and new tortures in the concentration camps of Europe? Where are the roots of the independent Vietnam we claim to be building? Is it among these voiceless ones? We have destroyed their two most cherished institutions, the family and the village. We have destroyed their land and their crops. We have cooperated in the crushing of the nation's only non-communist revolutionary political force, the Unified Buddhist Church. We have supported the enemies of the peasants of Saigon. We have corrupted their children, we have corrupted their women and children and killed their men. What liberators? Now there is little left to build on, save bitterness. Soon the only solid physical foundations remaining will be found at our military bases and in the concrete of the concentration camps we call fortified hamlets. The peasants may well wonder if we plan to build our new Vietnam on such grounds as these. Could we blame them for such thoughts? We must speak for them and raise the questions they cannot raise. These two are our brothers. Perhaps the more difficult but no less necessary task is to speak for those who have been designated as our enemies. What of the National Liberation Front, that strangely anonymous group we call VC or communists? What must they think of us in America when they realize that we permitted the repression and cruelty of DM, which helped to bring them into being as a resistance group in the South? What do they think of our condoning the violence which led to their own taking up of, our, of arms? How can they believe in our integrity when we speak of aggression from the North as if there was nothing more essential to the war? How can they trust us when we now charge them with violence after the murderous reign of Diem and charge them with violence while we pour now every new weapon of death into their land? Surely we must understand their feelings even if we do not condone their actions. Surely we must see that men we supported pressed them to their violence. Surely we must see that our own computerized plans of destruction simply dwarf their greatest acts. How do they judge us when our officials know that their membership is less than 25% communist and yet insist on giving them the blanket name? What must they be thinking when they know that we are aware of their control of major sections of Vietnam 
and yet we appear ready to allow national elections in which this highly organized political parallel government will have no part. They ask how we can speak of free elections when the Saigon press is censored and controlled by the military junta. And they are surely right to wonder what kind of new government we plan to help form without them, the only party in real touch with the peasants. They question our political goals and they deny the reality of a peace settlement from which they will be excluded. Their questions are frighteningly relevant. Is our nation planning to build on political myth again and then shore it up with the power of a new violence? Here is the true meaning and value of compassion and nonviolence when it helps us to see the enemy's point of view, to hear his questions, to know his assessment of ourselves. For from this view, we may indeed see the basic weaknesses of our own condition. And if we are mature, we may learn and grow and profit from the wisdom of the brothers who are called the opposition. So too with Hanoi. In the north, where our bombs now pummel the land and our mines endanger the waterways, we are met by a deep but understandable mistrust. To speak for them is to explain this lack of confidence in Western words, and especially their distrust of American intentions now. In Hanoi are the men who led the nation to independence against the Japanese and the French, the men who sought membership in the French Commonwealth and were betrayed by the weakness of Paris and the willfulness of the colonial armies. It was they who led a second struggle against French domination at tremendous cost, and then were persuaded to give up the land they controlled between the 13th and 17th parallel as a temporary measure at Geneva. After 1954, they watched us conspire with Diem to prevent elections, which would have surely brought Ho Chi Minh to power over a united Vietnam. And they realized they had been betrayed again. When we ask why they do not leap to negotiate, these things must be remembered. Also, it must be clear that the leaders of Hanoi considered the presence of American troops in support of the Diem regime to have been the initial military breach of the Geneva Agreements concerning foreign troops. And they remind us that they did not begin to send in any large number of supplies or men until American forces had moved into the tens of thousands. Hanoi remembers how our leaders refused to tell us the truth about the earlier North Vietnamese overtures for peace, how the president claimed that none existed when they had clearly been made. Ho Chi Minh has watched as America has spoken of peace and built up its forces, and now he has surely heard of the increasing international rumors of, America's, of American plans for an invasion of the North. He knows the bombing and the shelling and the mining we are doing are part of traditional pre-invasion strategy. Perhaps only his sense of humor and of irony can save him when he hears the most powerful nation of the world speaking of aggression as it drops thousands of bombs on a poor, weak nation more than eight thousand miles away from its shores. At this point, I should make clear that while I have tried in these last few minutes to give a voice to the voiceless on Vietnam and to understand the arguments of those who are called enemy, I'm deeply concerned about our troops there as anything else. For it occurs to me that what we are submitting them to in Vietnam is not simply the brutalizing process that goes on in any war where armies face each other and seek to destroy. 
We are adding cynicism to the process of death, for they must know after short period there that none of the things we claim to be fighting for are really involved. Before long, they must know that their government has sent them into a struggle among Vietnamese, and the more sophisticated surely realize that we are on the side of the wealthy and the secure while we create hell for the poor. Somehow this madness must cease. We must stop now. I speak as a child of God and brother to the suffering poor of Vietnam. I speak for those whose land is being laid to waste, whose homes are being destroyed, whose culture is being subverted. I speak for the poor of America who are paying a double price of smashed hopes at home and death and corruption in Vietnam. I speak as a citizen of the world, for the world as it stands aghast at the past we have taken. I speak as an American to the leaders of my own nation. The great initiative in this war is ours. The initiative to stop it must be ours. This is the message of the great Buddhist leaders of Vietnam. Recently, one of them wrote these words. Each day the war goes on, the hatred increases in the heart of the Vietnamese and in the hearts of those of humanitarian instinct. The Americans are forcing even their friends into becoming their enemies. It is curious that the Americans who calculate so carefully on the possibilities of military victory do not realize that in the process, they are incurring deep psychological and political defeat. The image of America will never again be the image of revolution, freedom, and democracy but the image of violence and militarism. If we continue, there will no doubt in my mind and in the mind of the world that we have no honorable intentions in Vietnam. It will become clear that our minimal expectation is to occupy it as an American colony and men will not refrain from thinking that our maximum hope is to go to time into a war so that they may bomb nuclear installations. If we do not stop our war against the people of Vietnam immediately, the world will be left with no other alternative than to see this as some horribly clumsy and deadly game we have decided to play. The world now demands a maturity of America that we may not be able to achieve. It demands that we admit that we have been wrong from the beginning of our adventure in Vietnam, that we have been detrimental to the life of the Vietnamese people. The situation is one in which we must be ready to turn sharply from our present ways. In order to atone for our sins and errors in Vietnam, we should take the initiative in bringing a halt to this tragic war. I would like to suggest five concrete things that our government should do immediately to begin the long and difficult process of extracting ourselves from this nightmarish conflict. One, end all bombing in North and South Vietnam. Two, declare a unilateral ceasefire in the hope that such action will create the atmosphere for negotiation. Three, take immediate steps to prevent other battlegrounds in Southeast Asia by curtailing our military buildup in Thailand and our interference in Laos. Four, Realistically accept the fact that the National Liberation Front has substantial support in South Vietnam and must thereby play a role in any meaningful negotiations and in any future Vietnam government. Five, set a date that we will remove all foreign troops from Vietnam in accordance with the 1954 Geneva Agreement. Part of our ongoing commitment might well express itself in an offer to grant asylum to any Vietnamese who fears for his life under a new regime, which included the Liberation Front. Then we, might, then we must make what reparations we can for the damage we have done. We must provide the medical aid that is badly needed, making it available in this country if necessary. Meanwhile, the churches and synagogues have a continuing task while we urge our government to disengage itself from a disgraceful commitment. We must continue to raise our voices if our nation persists in, in, the, in its perverse ways in Vietnam. We must be prepared to match actions with words 
by seeking out every creative means of protest possible. As we counsel young men concerning military service, we must clarify for them our nation's role in Vietnam and challenge them with the alternative of conscientious objection. I am pleased to say that this is the path now being chosen by more than 70 students at my own alma mater, Morehouse College. And I recommend it to all who find the American course in Vietnam a dishonorable and, un and unjust one. Moreover, I would encourage all ministers of draft age to give up their ministerial exemptions and seek status as conscientious objectors. These are the times for real choices and not false ones. We are at the moment when our lives must be placed on the line if our nation is to survive its own folly. Every man of humane convictions must decide on the protest that best suits his convictions, but we must all protest. There is something seductively tempting about stopping there and sending us off all off on what in some circles has become a popular crusade against the war in Vietnam. I say we must enter the struggle, but I wish to go on now to say something even more disturbing. The war in Vietnam is but a symptom of a far deeper malady within the American spirit. And if we ignore this sobering reality, we will find ourselves organizing clergy and laymen concerned committees for the next generation. They will be concerned about Guatemala and Peru. They will be concerned about Thailand and Cambodia. They will be concerned about Mozambique and South Africa. We will be marching for these and a dozen other names and attending rallies without end, unless there is, unless there is a significant and profound change in American life and policy. Such thoughts take us beyond Vietnam, but not beyond our calling as sons of the living God. In 1957, a sensitive American official overseas said that it seemed to him that our nation was on the wrong side of a world revolution. During the past 10 years, we have seen emerge a pattern of suppression which now has justified the presence of U.S. military advisors in Venezuela. This need to maintain social stability for our investments accounts for the counter-revolutionary action of American forces in Guatemala. It tells why American helicopters are being used against guerrillas in Colombia and why American Napalm and Green Beret forces have already been active against rebels in Peru. It is with such activity in mind that the words of the late John F. Kennedy come back to haunt us. Five years ago, he said, quote, those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. Increasingly, by choice or by accident, this is the role our nation has taken the role of those who make peaceful revolution impossible by refusing to give up the privileges and the pleasures that come from the immense profits of overseas investment. I am convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values we must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. When machines and computers, profit motive and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness 
and justice of many of our past and present policies. On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside, but that will be only an initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It is not haphazard and superficial. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. A true revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth. With righteous indignation, it will look across the seas and see individual capitalists of the West investing huge sums of money in Asia, Africa, and South America, only to take the profits out of the out with no concern for the social betterment of the countries and say, this is not just. It will look at our alliance with the landed gentry of Latin America and say, this is not just. The Western arrogance of feeling that it has everything to teach others and nothing to learn from them is not just. A true revolution of values will lay hands on the world order and say of war. This way of settling differences is not just. This business of burning human beings with napalm, of filling our nation's homes with orphans and widows, of injecting poisonous drugs of hate into veins of people normally humane, of sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields, physically handicapped and psychologically deranged, cannot be reconciled with wisdom justice and love. A nation that continues to continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. America, the richest and most powerful nation in the world, can well lead the way in this revolution of values. There is nothing except a tragic death wish to prevent us from reordering our priorities so that the pursuit of peace will take precedence over the pursuit of war. There's nothing to keep us from molding a recalcitrant status quo with bruised hands until we have fashioned it into a brotherhood. This kind of positive revolution of values is our best defense against communism. War is not the answer. Communism will never be defeated by the use of atomic bombs or nuclear weapons. Let us not join those who shout war and through their misguided passions urge the United States to relinquish its participation in the United Nations. These are days which demand wise restraint and calm reasonableness. We must not call everyone a communist or an appeaser who advocates to seating a red China in the United Nations and who recognizes that hate and hysteria are not the final answer to the problem of these turbulent days. We must not negate, engage in a negative anti-communism, but rather in a positive thrust for democracy, realizing that our greatest defense against communism is to take offensive action on behalf of justice. We must with positive action, seek to remove those conditions of poverty, insecurity, and injustice, which are all the fertile soil in which the seed of communism grows and develops. These are revolutionary times. All over the globe, men are revolting against old systems of exploitation and oppression, and out of the wombs of a frail world, new systems of justice and equality are being born. The shirtless and barefoot people of the land are rising up as never before. The people who sat in darkness have seen the great light. We in the West must support these revolutions. 
It is a sad fact because of comfort, complacency, a morbid fear of communism, and our proneness to adjust to injustice, the Western nations that initiated so much of the revolutionary spirit of the modern world have now become the arch anti-revolutionaries. This has driven many to feel that only Marxism has the revolutionary spirit. Therefore, communism is a judgment against our failure to make democracy real and follow through on the revolutions we initiated. Our only hope today lies in our ability to recapture the revolutionary spirit and go out into a sometimes hostile world, declaring eternal hostility to poverty, racism, and militarism. With this powerful commitment, we shall boldly engage the status quo and unjust mores and thereby speed the day when every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough places plain. A genuine revolution of values means in the final analysis that our loyalties must become ecumenical rather than sectional. Every nation must now develop an overriding loyalty to mankind as a whole in order to preserve the best in their individual societies. This call for a worldwide fellowship that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, and nation is in reality a call for an all-embracing and unconditional love for all men. This oft misunderstood and misinterpreted concept so readily dismissed by the Nietzsche's of the world as a weak and cowardly force has now become an absolute necessity for the survival of man. When I speak of love, I am not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I'm speaking of that force which all of the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. Love is somehow the key that unlocks the door which leads to ultimate reality. This Hindu, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Buddhist belief about ultimate reality is beautifully summed up in the first epistle of St. John. Let us love one another. For love is God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Let us hope that this spirit will become the order of the day. We can no longer afford to worship the God of hate or bow before the altar of retaliation. The oceans of history are made turbulent by the ever-rising tides of hate. History is cluttered with the wreckage of nations and individuals that pursued this self-defeating path of hate. As Arnold Toynbee says, love is the ultimate force that makes for the saving choice of life and good against the damning choice of death and evil. Therefore, the first hope in our inventory must be the hope that love is going to have the last word. We are now faced with the fact that tomorrow is today. We are confronted with the fierce urgency of now. In this unfolding conundrum of life and history, there is such thing, such a thing as to be too late. Procrastination is still the thief of time. Life often leaves us standing bare, naked, and dejected with a lost opportunity. The tide in the affairs of men does not remain at the flood. It ebbs. We must cry out desperately for time to pause her passage but time is deaf to every plea and rushes on. Over the bleached bones and jumbled residue of numerous civilizations are written the pathetic words, too late. There is an invisible book of life that faithfully records our, our, our vigilance or our neglect. The moving finger writes and having writ moves on. 
we still have a choice today. Nonviolent coexistence or violent co-annihilation. We must move past indecision to action. We must find new ways to speak for peace in Vietnam and justice throughout the developing world, a world that borders on our doors. If we do not act, we shall surely be dragged down the long, dark, and shameful corridors of time reserved for those who possess power without compassion, might without morality, and strength without sight. Now let us begin. Now let us rededicate ourselves to the long and bitter but beautiful struggle for a new world. This is the calling of the sons of God, and our brothers wait eagerly for our response. Shall we say the odds are too great? Shall we tell them the struggle is too hard? Will our message be that the forces of American life militate against their arrival as full men and we send our deepest regrets? Or will there be another message of longing, of hope, of solidarity with their yearnings, of commitment to their cause, whatever the cost? The choice is ours, and though we might prefer it otherwise, we must choose in this crucial moment of human history. As that noble bard of yesterday, James Russell Lowell, eloquently stated, Once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide, in the strife of truth and falsehood, for the good or evil side, Some great cause, God's new Messiah, offering each the bloom or blight, and the choice goes by forever twixt that darkness and that light. Though the cause of evil prosper, yet tis truth alone is strong. Though her portion be the scaffold, and upon the throne be wrong. Yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown, Standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. Thank you. This is Anna for Indigo Radio. I just want to thank uh, my fellow readers, Nina, Katie, Kelly, Kyra, and Patrice for reading Beyond Vietnam, the 1967 speech by the Reverend Martin Luther King. And we have just a couple of minutes. All of you are educators and students in some capacity would love to know what does this speech mean to you in 2023 uh and I, and when you um respond if you could just introduce yourself to the listeners we are all indigo hosts and students and teachers within the spark uh, teacher education program thank you anna for this uh, opportunity to read the speech again. I'm Patrice Stripert, and I am uh, also an adjunct faculty member at Keene State College, teaching the Women and Gender Studies program. And um, I guess the things that you that stood out to me were he, he spoke of the U.S. being the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, and and that speech was given uh, in 1967. And all of the, if I remember correctly, all of of the the major media, the Washington Post even said that um, he had diminished his usefulness to the cause. Uh, I think Barry Goldwater said he was treasonous in his speech. So he spoke of the pattern of suppression that was beginning in the world. And then the, it is so timely still. I mean, and, and I, tonight when all of every, all different things struck, struck me again, but certainly the the piece that I think you, you read, Anna, about love being the greatest power in the world and our, our regard for humanity. So um, I, when you think about what's going on in the world today, it's so timely. I mean, it has been for so long. And, and I think for me, his vision did really change the world, particularly with the, the civil disobedience and the boycotts, the way that he orchestrated uh, the, the civil rights movement so and and also the power of nonviolence. those those are the things that struck me again 
as I listened to us. Um, I'm Katie Bian. I'm an eighth grade social studies teacher in Newport, Rhode Island. So every year, um, the week of Martin Luther King's birthday, I have my students uh, do a, a lesson that takes a few days reading excerpts from King that they wouldn't ordinarily have heard before. And it's very, um, they're very shocked to like see this different side of King. That's not just his, I have a dream speech where like he's wrapped up in this like neat little bow of like, he just really wanted segregation to end. And then it did. And then he just kind of went away and he died by like, you know, the last racist killed him. And that was really sad. Um, and so to hear him talk about like us imperialism and militarism and capitalism is really surprising for them, but it's disheartening to like read this speech where he talks about how like this is a you know turning point in history, and like we have to change course, we have to change direction of our affairs in other countries around the world, and then having my students discuss the role of the U.S. in foreign affairs today and you know, nothing really shocks them when we discuss like the hand the United States military plays in other nations, in territorial disputes, like they're not phased by any of it now. Nothing is surprising to them. And so I'm eager to see, you know, I just feel like each passing year, the kids get less and less surprised when we go into um, like the U.S.'s role in other nations. So I'm interested to see how they, how this year's group reacts to the MLK lesson this year. Uh, thanks Katie and, and Patrice too for that. And um, what you said, I just made me think of, I never knew actually what the meaning of this, the speech title was until we read this tonight. I don't know why I've never thought about it, but when he says beyond Vietnam, that it's a deep malady he calls it, and that if we ignore this, we will also be concerned about other places. And he names some of those, Guatemala, Peru, South Africa. And so I'm thinking today, like Yemen, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, because we have continued to, to ignore it in many ways. Yeah, I feel like the, for me, the, this is Kelly, the, uh, the last part I read was like kind of chilling. The, he talks about the fierce urgency of now and that there is such a thing as being too late. Yeah, it's so chilling. And it's like, I don't know if we're too late and, me, and maybe we can say we're not too late in this moment because um, we're still here doing the work. And also like, I think that message of urgency is so important and that at another point he talks about like every creative protest is necessary you have to protest and i think people feel so frozen in the overwhelmingness of the problems but that we actually like as human beings like have so much creativity and like use our creativity in so many ways that there's like no wrong way to go about like voicing our opposition to the current world and way of operating and voicing our our belief in our dreams in a better world and I feel like that's like inspired like heartening and inspiring just to think about like we have to protest and like any creative protest is is what's needed this is Kyra I like piggybacking off of what you're saying Kelly like it kind of when I first dove deep into this speech during my internship at through Spark where I was teaching a lesson and on, like on the on the Vietnam War um, in a high school classroom and then it felt so present with the times the speech it's, it's really timeless because it's really like we've been in constant war since he wrote it. And so, yeah, the time is now. It's always been now to to act and and protest and what he was saying about, yeah, like protesting 
at, in whatever means like of your conviction like whatever you can do whatever you're connected to and you're connected to everyone in the world all living beings and so it's like caring yeah it's beyond Vietnam like caring about all of life and like how how can you do that wherever you are in the world right now and I'm Nina and I teach at the community college of Vermont at the moment what Kelly said also um struck a chord with me about he he wrote or he said (laughs) I guess he wrote first and said, you know, that you have to match your actions with words. And I think a lot about like social media, you know, that it's so easy to just type out these words or or to say these words, but often they're not matched with action. And I think Kelly, you also said that there's this, you know, fear, fear of action. And, and in some ways, like, I feel like social media, because it's so, so, so dominant, you know, within our our relations with each other, that in some ways it dissipates that action by just using words. And so I I echo what Kyra and Kelly are saying of like, and Dr. Martin Luther King also, that, you know, that action is really important no matter how small. And I think like, you know, I, I put a big mark around this key thing that he said, right, about like, we have to shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. Um, and and to me, like part of this, as you said, Patrice, you know, the Barry Goldwater called this speech treasonous is because he's really speaking out against capitalism um, and against the ravages of capitalism, which does fuel war and fuel imperialism. Um, and, and you must have poverty. And so, yeah, it is a really timeless, as Kyra said, speech, because it, it was only 50 years ago, right? Somewhere around there. I'm bad at math. <laughs> but, it was, you know, that it's as though whatever was happening then has really, is really blooming now. And I hate using that word because, you know, flower bloom is so beautiful. And this isn't so beautiful, right? Like the ravages of war and poverty, but we're still living it. Thank you, Nina and Kelly and Katie and Kyra and Patrice for all your thoughts. I One last thing I just wanna add is, I think Patrice, you had used this phrase, his regard for humanity. And I I think that was something also that struck me as like his such a deep regard for humanity and also for the planet. That, that was something that also struck me just because of so much talk around the climate. And he talks about the just devastation of the land and the water and the climate. And so, yeah, I think that it's so important to to read this and to think on on how we keep going. And I just wanna thank you all for joining me tonight and reading this. This is Anna for Indigo Radio. And we wanna thank you all for tuning in today. We're gonna go out with a song called Why by Nina Simone. She sang it three days after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. And the song was written by her bassist, Jean Taylor. Thanks all, and we will be back next week. Of course, this whole program is dedicated to the memory of Dr. Martin Luther King. You know that. Once upon this planet Earth lived a man of humble birth, preaching love and freedom for his fellow man. He was dreaming of the day peace would come to us. And he spread this message all across the land. Turn the other cheek, he'd plead. Love thy neighbor 
Shoot back. 